ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications and one of your hosts. And over there at the, looks like the kids table, it is... <laughs> Tom Sharpentier, government relations director. And uh, Tom, we are lucky, beyond lucky to have... A, uh, a third-time guest in the studio with us. Why don't you tell us who's here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Charlie Precourt, a longtime friend of uh, and, and integral part of EAA, uh, is, uh, is back with us. Uh, he's been, for uh, more than 10 years now, the chair of our safety committee. Um, we've worked together on a, on a couple of, of different projects for, uh, for home-built safety, and he's been very involved in the safety world. But, uh, but of course, prior to, um, to his current stint here at EAA, uh, he... Uh, flew the space shuttle four times, and uh, he was our, I believe, our second guest on the podcast. And I remember back in those days, I was still not the, uh, I, I was, I was even less experienced than I am now as a podcast host. And uh, I just remember our, uh, I remember being at a major loss for words as uh, Charlie was describing the, uh, the the approach profile of the space shuttle and trying to think of some kind of intelligent question to ask <laughs> as a follow up. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was a, an absolutely classic episode, and, yeah. and of course we have to add uh, Charlie is columnist for Sport Aviation Magazine. Of course, yes. Test, uh, uh, flight test for us every month and bringing a lot of great wisdom there. So. Yeah. So today's topic is actually a little bit, uh, a little bit more down to earth as far as aviation goes, anyway. Um, and it involves uh, Charlie's um, uh, history as a home builder. Um, in uh, in addition to all the other uh, achievements he's had in his flying career. So Charlie, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Hal. Really, a lot of fun to be here as always. Just really enjoy Oshkosh this time of year. It's pretty nice. I mean, hopefully this is uh, bodes real well for the air venture coming up. It's beautiful right now. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We're recording this on uh, May fourth, of course, Star Wars Day. May the fourth be with you. Uh, on a, and that's a Thursday. Uh, Monday we had a blizzard. Monday, May first. <laughs> so so yes, much much nicer day. Clear skies and sunny and all that good stuff. Um, so. Charlie, let's. Uh, what was it that that led you to sort of get involved and and or stay involved in GA, kind of while simultaneously building this remarkable career, an Air Force test pilot, flying F-15s, going on into the astronaut corps, having a prestigious career there, a Hall of Famer astronaut. Some people in that position might uh, might say, well, the last thing I want to do on a weekend is. <laughs> you know, anything other than play golf or go fishing or something like that. Some people would say, and I don't understand these people, but why would I want to be in an airplane? Why would I want to go out to an airport when I do all this cool stuff as part of the day job? What what led you that direction? Well, you fully described my life as an airplane addict. So <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have my dad and my uncle to credit to all of that. My dad flew light airplanes when I was growing up. I, my first experience behind the yoke of an airplane was in a in a Cherokee when I was about five, and wow. by the time I was seven, I was sitting on some cushion to where I could see over the, the dash and play autopilot for dad at, in cruise, you know, and I just became an addict real, real young. My uncle was in the Air Force, and he vectored me towards the Air Force Academy, but my roots are really in GA. Um, just as young as, as I was with dad and my younger brother, he would take us out to Martha's Vineyard for morning breakfast and back, and we just had a blast, and I... Um, I went to the Air Force Academy with the idea that I could fly the bigger jets, and that came to pass with good fortune and a lot of hard work, obviously. But um, along the way, um, I never lost the the uh, 
personal goal of being able to fly my own airplane and be able to enjoy that with my family like my dad did with me. And in particular, after I got married, um, I wanted to be able to spend weekends with Lynn going different places, not far from home, but just, you know, within an airplane's reach. So I stumbled across uh, Bert Rattan's flyer on the Very Easy, and that started my quest towards home building. That's great. And I guess maybe this kind of goes into it, too. I think um, a lot of us... I think a lot of us on the outside would have a little bit trouble wrapping our heads around the fact that an astronaut has time for hobbies. Uh, <laughs> and that's something we haven't really talked about much is, you know, obviously, what what does, you know, especially, I, I know things have changed over time, but back when you were involved in the shuttle program, what was the daily life of an astronaut? And, you know, when you were on the ground, of course, and, and what was kind of the workup cycle that you went through? It's a lot like being a student in college because it's so heavily um, geared towards training and on-the-job training as well as classroom and simulator. Um, and it's really enjoyable because uh, there's so much variety. You can be involved in, well, to step back just a bit, the first year is just an orientation to the program at large. We would travel and work together as a group that we were selected with, and they would take us to the different NASA centers to show us what transpires at each center, what their contribution is to the overall space program, who's doing what programs and projects, and. And in particular for us in the shuttle program, Kennedy and Johnson were the two key places. We lived at Johnson, but we traveled to Kennedy a lot. And the other centers were supporting arms for the whole program. Um, and then once we got through this year of orientation and basic introduction to the, sh the simulator and the flight profiles of the shuttle and mission control, we were given extra duty jobs. And whether we'd be a, a Capcom uh, talking to crews on orbit from the control center or going to the Cape to help load and prepare the shuttle for the next launch or whatever the job might be, it was part of our ongoing training. So yeah, we were very busy. We were traveling a lot. Uh, there were a group of us, though, that enjoyed GA airplanes. There were at least seven or eight of us that had built our own airplanes, and we were all at Ellington Field or at smaller fields near there where we had our home built, and we'd get together and fly together on the weekends. So it, we had our own, you know, free time club, if you would, in our in our weekends to be able to enjoy that together. Awesome. That's really something. Yeah. So um, sort of circle back to the, uh, to the, the very easy. And was that, were we talking sort of early mid seventies, right? When that yeah. really, really first came around. So where were you in your career at that point? I was just starting flight school. I had graduated from the Air Force Academy and I was an okay. aeronautical engineering major. Um, and uh, when you in those days, and I'm sure it's similar still today, you took a track in your major, and I wanted to do more of the structures than the propulsion track in Aero. Um, and uh, I got involved in um, some design work. Uh, my senior project was to, to design what today might be called a, you know, a, a remote piloted uh, warhead carrying uh, RPV vehicle. Wow like a cruise missile. So I got into the cycles of design. I got really fascinated with that. And then um, I had an early introduction at the Academy to some of the advanced materials because we learned that materials were a big contributor to the ultimate performance of the machine because of weight, weights the, you know, the be all end all to try to make a nice airplane. And then I came across, uh, as I was in pilot training, I came across this flyer from the Rattan Aircraft Factory I got to reading about Bert and uh, his brother had been in the air. They had both been at Edwards. His brother had been uh, in Vietnam and, and, you know, they were several years ahead of me, but I could relate to their experience and just became fascinated with what he was trying to do. And so I ordered a kit and started building fiberglass parts and 
the big advertisement was, it's only going to take me 800 hours. <laughs> I told my wife, Lynn, we'll be done in like 10 weeks. <laughs> it's more like six years later. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Now, had you done, uh, either as part of schooling or anything, had, had you done hands-on work with any composites before that? My grandfather was a carpenter. We had tools in the house. My dad had his own business that involved a lot of tools. I grew up uh, working in my dad's business, uh, driving forklifts, and I was always around tools. I love. I can't say that I was a master craftsman of, by any stretch, but I I loved it. I love working with my hands, and and so I I just thought to myself, you know, I fly for a living with the Air Force, but I can't take my wife in those airplanes, and I can fly as much as three times a day. So I don't need an airplane for my flying. I want to build an airplane to learn about more of what I was studying in books at the Air Force Academy, the practical application of aero engineering. And, uh, and so that's why I got into it. And, and then I thought the benefit will be that I can take my wife in this airplane when it's done. So that was a whole ton of fun. Now the, uh, so the very easy, I think most of our audience will probably know what that is, but, uh, for those who don't, that was before the long, easy, uh, kind of Rutan's first was the, his was first was the very Vigan. First was the Vigan. Was sure. the very Vigan a moldless composite? Uh, it was a more of a metal structure. Yeah. Yep. So, so the very easy was kind of his first moldless composite kit, right? Uh, the the so yes, the yeah. the very easy was a core foam uh, with an overlay of, of fiberglass, um, and uh, he had the quickie in there in the middle. Oh yeah, right. So okay. it was very big and quickie, um, very easy, long easy, and so forth, and then his bigger ones. Right, and that, it seems like the very easy is the one that. Kind of hit critical mass in terms of really getting a lot of people's attention and focusing on. If composites. you go back and look at Air Venture when he brought it here, it was like in a madhouse rock yeah. concert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody wanted to see what is this thing with a canard, right? You know, and um, and the, the you know the the ability to build it for the cost at the time and the performance that it delivered. You know, 170 to 200 miles an hour, depending on how good you were at achieving a light structure. Uh, on four to five, six gallons an hour, that was like, this is nirvana, you know, for a young <laughs> guy that wants to fly an airplane. So I have to ask, uh, you're studying aeronautical engineering and you're focusing on the structures side of it. Uh, you know, you've got a full course load, all this stuff going on, and then you're just deciding sort of building an airplane on top of that. Were you the only one in your class that did that? And number two, did you get some kind of extra credit? Did you say, hey, look, <laughs> I not only passed the test, I actually literally am building an airplane. Um, so because it took so many years, I started it right as I was finished in flight school. And um, Lynn and I got married right after we finished. I finished flight school. And I was into preparing to build it when we were still in flight oh, school. Sure. But it didn't really start until I was on my first assignment as an instructor pilot. And uh, there, there weren't others immediately adjacent that were building an airplane, but there were those friends of mine that I flew with that would come and help. Um, and, uh, and then as I got to Houston later on, um, well, it was a funny story that the airplane followed me from uh, Lubbock to Alamogordo to Phoenix, <laughs> almost to Germany, and we decided the last week. That was too hard. Germany. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. <laughs> uh, and then uh, to, out to Edwards, is, which is where it got finally got painted and flown. But um, at each of those stops, there were more and more of my colleagues that became interested in being part of it. And by the time I got to back to Houston, there were a lot of colleagues that were building airplanes. So it just kind of grew with the movement. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So um, were there any modifications that you made to the original design? I know that the original, original used what, uh, 
it was Elevance, Aileron. The, the canard with the elevator on it. Yeah, yeah the canard, but it, that also controlled roll, right? Yeah, the original elevator had a roll function, and they took that away. Okay. Um, and uh, I was by the time I was building it, that mod was done, so okay. I didn't start with the the roll control on the front end. Just the ailerons on the on the wing. Okay. Uh, any any other modifications you made as you were building? I, I decided that first cycle through until I flew it, I was going to be pure to the design. I wanted to match the design, and then I did play with things. Um, Klaus Sarrier, who's a, a member and probably the the king of of performance enhancements, uh, his very easy is amazing. I flew it out at Edwards. Uh, many years later, and uh, the difference between mine and his is like night and day. He had mastered how to improve the flying qualities. The very easy has some adverse yaw, especially at lower speeds. When you roll it, it wants to yaw on you. Um, the nature of the, the the rudders being on the vertical winglets, you can actually push both at the same time, and it acts like a speed brake. Just getting used to the response because it's a canard and has winglet rudders, all of that's a little different. The pusher's a little different. But when I flew his, he had absolutely mastered mods, small mods that made it fly sweeter, and his performance on his speed was incredible. So I started to to copy some of the stuff he did. I, uh, me and a couple other astronaut friends, um, we went out to his place in California for a long weekend, and I built a carbon graphite um, cowling, saved about six or eight pounds on the way to the cowling. It was vacuum bagged, and Klaus kind of guided us through how to do that did his spinner and his, um, you know, some engine mods that he did. And it was just a lot of fun. By the time I was really flying it, I really wanted to now experiment in the, you know, the nature of all of us here at EAA, right? Exactly. And that was really fun because you start learning incrementally more things about what the machine needs to fly and how it can fly better. It was a lot of fun. What did you think was the uh, the hardest part of the of the build? Um, you know, the, the layup of the, fi the large fiberglass skins on the fuselage was very, very challenging because it's large sheets of fiberglass at once, and it really takes three or four, two or three or four people at a time to handle it to get the layups nicely laid onto it. Um, most of it was not difficult. It was just time-consuming, um, trying to be really true on angles and lines and have a nice, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want it to fly crooked. You don't want sure. it to be out of, out of trim, and you yeah. have to use all these trim surfaces. So getting it precise is probably the biggest challenge. Yeah, Taking your time, doing it right. letting uh, Stretching those 800 hours Into out. Into about 3,000, yeah. yeah. I don't know what it was at the end of the day, but it was multiples of 800. Nice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I did appreciate Bert's uh, Retain Aircraft Factory team and their attention to newsletter updates to the design and it really was focused on how to fly the thing safely and how to end up building it safely very professional it was very much in line with what i was used to flying military airplanes in the community that made sure that anything that popped up that was an issue it got addressed you know and it was really nice to see he followed and supported everybody who was building that's that's high praise uh praise indeed it would be easy to imagine somebody with sort of your your background and your qualifications, looking at something like that and maybe rolling your eyes a little bit and saying, well, this is a little bit amateurish or things like that. But the fact that it, it, yeah, it sort of met all, your standards. I yeah, I think we've all seen some designs come and go because they lacked the support once they sure. were deployed and the builders couldn't uh, really deliver on their own without some support. So, right. I want to touch back really quick on the uh, what Tom brought up about the original Very Easy's 
having some roll control in the canard. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on your your knowledge and your expertise, can you speak to a little bit about how that worked and why they would have backed away from it? You know, I'd, Hal, I'd have to actually go back and read some of that again because, like I said, by the time I was building mine, that was eliminated. I think okay. there was a question about the uh, the authority of it in roll was not what they had hoped, and the complexity of putting it up there um, – combined to say, you know, this is extra work that's not benefiting us, so let's eliminate it. I think that was kind of the gist of it, but I'd have to actually go read the, gotcha. read the newsletters again because that all happened before my time. But that's kind of what I recall is, again, in the vein of supporting the builder and continuing to make things more appropriate for the end-designed um, intent, uh, I think they just decided to eliminate that. That's a, a, an interesting and it's commendable approach. Uh, you think a lot of companies would maybe they'd be touting that as a feature this Mm -hmm. is innovative this is remarkable look at what this can do uh to then walk that back and say you know what it's it's too complicated and not worth the effort for you or us right uh is uh i mean to me that's a sign of a stand-up company exactly yep so um you get the aircraft done in six years and whoever knows how many hours (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so what point in your career were you when you finished the airplane i was just finishing test pilot school so a good time to start test, <laughs> test flying something. It really was, you know, and all we did in the flight test manual downstream with Tom, uh, you and I in the group. Um, yeah, I had, um, and it was just total coincidence in timing the fact that I had a, an F-15 assignment in Germany where I couldn't work on it, couldn't get it finished, but then ended up with an assignment to the test pilot school, which you talk about not having any free time. The airplane didn't get any attention while I was in test pilot school. That was a different kind of workload. Uh, but once I was done, I had a lot of support from folks there on the base. Uh, did weight and balance in the big weight and balance hangar that they did the B one in, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those scales even register. Uh, well, you know, we had a little bit of small. trouble with that. Is like <laughs> this thing's not. It doesn't meet the you know the tear requirement to trip <laughs> the the scales. Uh, but uh, and I flew it first flight out of South, what we called South Base. There's an old runway on the south side of Edwards that had been used way back. That had been turned mostly into the Aero Club for GA airplanes flown by military members on the base. And uh, today it it got completely overhauled, and it's where the B2 is flown out of. It built a whole new infrastructure over oh, there. Wow. But at the time, I was able to to keep my airplane on the ramp over there and. And uh, did the first flight out of there, had plenty of runway, obviously, in the lake bed. It was a beautiful place to do a first flight on on something like the Very Easy. So, And then, of course, Rattan Aircraft Factory was just up the road at Mojave. I sure. could drive over there anytime. So. How, how did, I mean, obviously, you were a professional test pilot at this point, but um, this was long before the flight test manual. Yeah. So how did you build your test program? So I basically uh, consulted with uh, Rattan, and he had written a test plan into his um, – uh, publication that he he sold with the plans, and I looked at that, and there was a lot of debates in the community about how do you do a first flight? Do you runway flight, or do you take off? Should you do a high speed abort? Should you lift off and fly and then land? Went through all of those. What is the content of the very first flight? And uh, so I I spent most of my uh, you know I had come out of test pilot school having flown in a flight test environment some 60, 70 different airplanes, so it wasn't. Um, so much that I didn't have any experience. I had flown a couple of very, very easy, excuse me, um, and kind of knew what to expect from a flying quality standpoint, which I'd always advised anyone is if, 
you're going to go fly your own airplane for the first time, fly another one like it so you, you're not surprised by the way it handles. There was nothing about the actual piloting and the handling that I felt like I wasn't uh, prepared for. What I really wanted to do was make sure the machine was going to perform. Was the engine going to operate properly? What would I do if it quit? Uh, so there's a lot of planning that went into the first flight relative to what if it's not all together the way it should be yet. So we did do we did decide to do a runway flight because the runway there is so long. So I I wanted to understand that the canard was performing in the liftoff phase. One of the things about the very easy is you don't want to be lifting the canard above the horizon to block your horizon because you, you end up driving the speed to a, a canard stall. So there, there's a lot of little things I wanted to verify about the canard performance. So a runway flight to me seemed pretty appropriate. So we took it to where uh, I could lift the nose off, settle it back down, lift it off, lift the whole airplane off, hold it, set it back down. Still had, you know, 5,000 feet of runway in front of me. Um, but, uh, you know, and I had a chase pilot in a Cherokee, a test pilot classmate of mine, and my wife had a video camera sitting next to him in his airplane, and he followed me. I circled up over the airport and checked out the engine and then did a couple of practice approaches at altitude for handling qualities and then came back and landed and pulled the cowl off to inspect it. All the things that we yeah. talked about, right, for <laughs> what you do in a first flight. It was a lot of fun. So it was a lot of fun. Tell me more about how you felt uh, during that the, first you know, flight. Especially after six years and yeah. thinking about this, um, it was pretty exhilarating because, it, you know, you think through all the – you want to make sure there's some trepidation. What have I got not right? I had some good – collaboration. My uh, FAA inspector was actually an FAA inspector. It wasn't a designee. He came from the FISDO down at Van Nuys, and he got really personally interested in what I was doing because I think, as I recall, he was retired or, or, yeah, he had been in the Air Force and then went to the FAA. And he spent a lot of time looking at the airplane and giving me advice, and other folks did too. So I, it was the trepidation about what what I'm, am I not getting right here? What am I missing? And so when it, when it all came came together so nicely. It was really exhilarating and being able to share it with a small group of folks. I was really particular about not having a everybody in my test pilot school class showing up with their families and waving pom-poms. <laughs> and I wanted it to be a quiet first flight with only those that needed to be there, uh, but those that could still celebrate with me. So, And it's got to be that timing, of course, just coming out of test pilot school and stuff, as it did for Tom, fascinates me in thinking about uh, as you mentioned, you flew 60 or 70 types in test pilot school. I know there's a tremendous variety and other test flying that, that you would have been, would have done and would have been training for. You're testing the, the, the products of hopefully some of the best mm -hmm. teams and the best minds in the business. Correct. You know, they've done their part, then it's over to you to do your part. You're trusting them. They're trusting you that's got to be a strange, a little bit of an odd feeling when you're wearing both of those hats. It is because, uh, and that's where you rely on a two or three very close colleagues to help you. Uh, like I mentioned, the guy from the FISDO and my classmate from test pilot school who could look at this with a little more of a um, arm's length thought process about, yeah, I'm following what you're doing and it makes sense. And, you know, we had just gone through a year of understanding how you collect the data and then looking at it to understand what it means to you. And for me, and this is what we base the flight test manual on is, and in particular the, the additional pilot program, is the idea that there are other airplanes like this that have flown that serve as a benchmark. So the data collection is for you to say, 
okay, this this is in fact performing like the one that I expected it to. So now let's go to the next step and let's keep looking at things. So I, I ended up with, um, in the flying qualities realm, I ended up with some trim that I didn't expect. Um, and it was probably because I didn't get one of the the surfaces of one of the wings as straight and flat as I could have. And and so that was one of the things that I discovered in in my flying uh, handling qualities is when we got to the approach to stall phase is I had to make sure I was tracking, is this trim acceptable? It, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that it was different, right? So it was the first thing I came across that was remarkably different than what I was expecting. So we stopped and we talked about it, we looked at it, and found out that there were a lot of them out there that were flying with a lot more trim than I was. So we proceeded with uh, good results. And again, I was in an area where I had lots of lots of help and lots of good airspace to work in. So remarkable. And this was this okay? So I'm trying trying to think timeline wise. Was this about the beginning of the shuttle program? Um, uh, early eighties. It was. 80s? It was uh, yeah, it was uh, the first flight. Was it was right before Challenger? So it was uh, okay. 1985, uh, uh, early 1986. Sorry, was when we flew it, and uh, I graduated in at the end of '85. So. I, just, I thought that was kind of funny timeline-wise. You know, you've got the, the shuttle landing at Edwards. And did you ever land at Edwards in the shuttle? I did, I did my first flight, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, you uh... yeah, yeah, the first landing there was in 1981. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, it landed there through the life of the program and more and more uh, infrequently towards the end of the program because we wanted it at Kennedy, obviously. But it was the weather alternate. Yeah, okay. Um, and I guess another question that, that I have just as a pilot who's never flown a, a Rutan design before is – does a canard fly that much differently than a conventional aircraft? Uh, not um, not dramatically differently. Uh, the stall characteristics are definitely different because uh, what's neat about it is um, you can control it at full aft stick, and and all it does is the canard will lose lift for a second, and it as the nose drops, it recovers angle of attack, and it starts flying again. So it's called a nose buck, and at full aft stick, it'll just sit there and 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 bob a little bit. If you power off, it'll descend in that in that nose buck. But if you add power, it'll actually climb um, right at the edge of the stall. So it wow. it's uh, it does deliver on the you know the the promise of better controllability. But it still has like every airplane, it has areas you have to be very careful with. Um, so that it because it does fly differently, the the negative transfer of training from say a Cessna to this is something to be cognizant of the thing that most people do when they take off is they're, they um, they end up uh, when they lift off they're pressing on both rudder pedals because one of the things you do when you're new to something is you tense up and right. so they take off and they're dragging brakes and they don't even realize that they're pressing on both rudder pedals so both rudder um, <laughs> on both winglets are deflected outboard and and uh, they don't even know that they're pressing on on rudder and and or they're trans- transferring training negatively with a pusher versus a puller and the torque effect is not the same and oh, yeah. not using the rudders the same. And so there's just a, a variety of things. And I, like I've always said, whenever you get a new airplane, don't expect it to be it, like the last one you were in. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, of course, going back to 1903 and, and, well, and even prior, the Wrights, their gliders and their, their uh, powered airplane, the Flyer, yeah, that was a canard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then in, we saw a few other canard designs in that, so that golden age, and we've seen other things over the years. Um, but, you know, Rattan, at least arguably, brought it to GA in prominence. 
and and certainly there's a there's a devoted following out there. But every airplane is a trade off. Mm-hmm. There's a collection of trade offs. Right. Why do you think we don't see more canards out there? Um, there are um, <laughs> there are a variety of them, like you've seen the Avanti, and that are sure. a little bit bigger that use the canard. And um, I think it it by and large has come down to um, there are are some aspects of it that are nice, but not compellingly nice enough for larger manufacturers. To say I'm going to change my tooling and go build that kind of design and. And so it just has not had the following that it might have had otherwise. That's my guess, is that there's a tradition with the tailplane, the engine being up front, all those kinds of things that uh, has has become the standard, and it's hard right. to break that, right? Right. And and it's it's not broken, so yeah. nobody feels a compelling need to fix it. Yeah, I think that's mostly it. Yeah, I mean, what I've – because I've looked at canard designs myself, and I think, um, you know, what's driven me – I'd love to have one and fly one, but the, you know, part of living here in Wisconsin is short and soft fields, which, uh-huh. you know, without the, um, uh, there's some aspects of the canard that make it a little bit less, uh, mm-hmm. uh good for that. But yeah, it's, it's funny how, you know, you're talking about the kind of the evolution of the canard. And when I was growing up, that was the middle of the X 29 program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think the Eurofighter was under development at the time. And so like the canard was this thing that like, you know, w- took advantage of an unstable design and made it really, really, uh, really highly maneuverable. So like when I was looking at, at long easies, when I was a kid, very easy, it was like, Oh, well, this thing must be a real handful. <laughs> it, it, uh, so one of the experiments I did was to put cuffs on the tips of the canard, a little, very, uh, small, but slightly downward sloping, um, inverse winglets on the <laughs> tips oh. of the card canard, mostly for aesthetics. Um, but when I went out and flew it, the dang thing had more pitch authority than I had ever imagined it could. And I was actually, um, I took them off because I was concerned that the canard had gained so much more effectiveness that it could drive the main wing to a stall. Mm-hmm. So what it's designed to do is stall before the main wing, which protects you because the main wing never hits a stall. The nose drops first and the wing is still flying. Um, and so I, that's one of the things I learned about it is there is a, a delicate um, nature to the canard, the cord of the canard on the Verizzi is relatively short. The surface texture had to be within six thousandths um, of smoothness uh, on this top surface to get the right aerodynamic qualities. Um, so there are things like that that the precision of a canard has to be right or it's not going to have good handling qualities. It'll either stall too soon and you won't have pitch authority or it'll stall too late and you'll drive a stall into the main wing. So I think there are a lot of things like that that maybe contributed in general, uh, to the bigger picture of why people just do take the hit the easy button and just keep with what works, right? So you you, you touched on this a little bit on uh, talking about now moving over to NASA. So you're still you were actively. How long did you actively fly your your aircraft? Uh, the very easy. Yeah. Uh, let's see, from '86 to about uh, 2005. So pretty much your entire NASA career. Yeah. Yeah, um, and you you mentioned that there was a pretty healthy home building community at NASA, right? Yeah. We, we um, yeah. I know that um, when you were on with Hoot Gibson, we talked a little bit, or I wasn't one of the hosts, but we, I know you talked a little bit about his. He built a Cassett, right? Yeah, he has yeah. a Cassett racer and completely redesigned his own wing. Yeah, and uh, made it um, more efficient for racing because he mm-hmm. raced the Cassett, um, did quite well with it. Um, Jim Voss had a long easy. We shared a hangar together. Scott Horowitz had a. Uh, a a Q200, um, and uh, there were just a number of folks that ended up um, 
either buying a home built, an RV or something like that. I could go on with maybe half a dozen more that either had contributed to building um, or had bought a home built. And I'm sure a lot of the you know, the engineering engineers and ground staff too, right? They did, yeah. We had yeah. Um, uh, several of them that built Lanceers and uh one was trying to build a velocity and was still working on it the last I checked. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, mean, I, I guess we're, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, our friend Paul Dye, yep, um, the yep. Uh, flight uh, director. Yep, Paul's very prolific flight he's, director. He's, uh, he was one of my mission's uh, chief flight directors. We worked together quite well. I uh, had a lot of fun with our crew, and in that mission, it was one of the Mir do- Russian Mir station docking flights. And, uh, and, of course, he's built a, a number of airplanes. So We just talked to him actually uh, uh, earlier, or I guess last week, about uh, his his electric uh, Xenos mm. that he's been flying. Yeah. And he's uh, he'll, he'll probably wind up being one of, if not the first um, aircraft to actually go through task-based phase nice. one. So, nice. Yeah. Fantastic. So in that uh, that 20-year period, you, you finished the very easy. Uh, how did you use it? Did did you and Lynn get to take some we trips? We did. We okay. did. Yeah. Um, the f- the first time I took it home, I wanted to, of course, share it with my my dad and uh, and uh, Mike Goulian's dad and my dad had partnered in a. My dad was kind of a silent partner in the Goulian's fixed base operation in the flight school up at Hanscom, and Mike Goulian's dad is the DPE that signed me off on my pilot pilot certificate when I was in high school. Oh wow! So uh, we we uh, we Lynn and I jumped in the airplane out of Houston and. And uh, if you recall, a very easy has reclining seats. So a long flight from Houston to to back to the Boston area. I think we we probably did it in one day, as I recall. But it was a long day. She would put her feet up on the headrest uh, next to my head. <laughs> uh, kick back in the airplane. We we made it up there by late afternoon. It was in the summer, and uh, Mike Gullian's dad was there, and my dad and my mom, and we parked it on the ramp right next to the airplanes. They used to fly as a student, you know, that kind of thing. So it was great to go home and and share that with everybody. They actually rented a, an airplane from the Gullians and came out to rejoin on me on the way in for the last. 30, 40 miles or something like that to get some aerial photos and stuff. That's great. It was a lot of fun, yeah. Gosh, that must have been something. Any other uh, big trips you guys made? We, um, when we were at Edwards, we made several um, into the California area, just out to, you know, um, different parks and so forth and whatnot. And got to take Lynn's dad on a couple of flights and went out to Catalina, had some lunch out there. Um, yeah, just a variety of places. I took my daughter back to Lubbock where she was born uh, when we were out and about one time. So That's great. Yeah. And, of course, um, now that your Fair Easy's been retired, it's uh, had a little bit of a cameo in an EAA yeah. role. Yeah. <laughs> Talk yes. about that real quick. <laughs> well, uh, a good friend of mine where I live today near Salt Lake um, has been on the board of the foundation for Stan Lee. Uh, Stan has, of course, since passed, but... Um, uh, Mark Kendall was very interested in assisting with our Young Eagles program, and, and um, we kind of batted some things around, talked to Jack, and came up with the idea that we'd create a, a superhero character to represent kids in home building and Young Eagles, and uh, Avior was conceived. And um, as things transpired, uh, we have a magazine now with comes out, hell, I guess it's quarterly, right? Uh, th- three times Three a times a year. Yeah. And... Um, it tells a story of the young Avior that had a, an airplane that looked a lot like a very easy. <laughs> so 
along the way, we had the idea that when we christened uh, the whole program at AirVenture, we would use my airplane as kind of a of a um, uh, you know a cover story for the whole the whole <laughs> unveiling. And so it's caught on, and I and we d- display it continuously and so forth. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's put great. put a nice. Uh, um, blue and yellow wing covering on yep. it to make it look uh, jazzy. So it's great. <laughs> to, to make it AVR-esque. Is, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, I've seen it a few times. It's actually uh, keeping my airplane project company over in the blue barn All right. right now. So. All right. <laughs> well, it was it was pretty fascinating to have Stan Lee on the grounds here when he unveiled it at the gathering. Yeah. It was really special. Yeah, that was a, that was a big day for – Somebody like me, who's a self-styled pop culture and aviation nerd, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> and we got our own superhero excited. now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and we've taken a little bit of a hiatus with the Avior comic book uh, as our uh, original artist has moved on to other things, but we've got a new artist on board. Awesome. Uh, issue fifteen is is coming up soon, and uh, it's it's looking gorgeous. Great. Um, really, really looks uh, looks great. Um, and there's, uh, as I've mentioned to you, Tom, there's uh, one or two, uh, a big part of the story is a flashback, not to spoil anything, but uh, anybody <laughs> with uh, who's uh, who's got uh, some interest in a couple of classic mid-80s aviation movies will notice a few little Easter eggs. Nice. <laughs> nice. So it's inevitable. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Would that be like Top Gun or something? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. What? I never never heard of it, uh, and certainly no references to uh, Iron Eagle, the uh, the real classic uh, 1986 aviation uh, jet fighter movie. Does Avior fly the snake? <laughs> hey, you got snake on the brain. Okay, okay. Well, let's not go down that road. Although I have to say, the uh, artist when I interviewed him, uh, when we were looking at a bunch of different candidates, he completely of his own volition just brought up Iron Eagle and went on about how much he loved it. I, I just. So who put you up to this? Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you knew me too well. Um, so, Charlie, what uh, uh, when you think back on your, you know, your home building experience in particular, um, you know, you you came at it with uh, unusual qualifications. I think per, maybe compared to sort of an average an average home builder, but um, you know, obviously, you, you don't need to be a graduate of the test pilot school. And an Air Force trained aeronautical engineer to build an airplane, um, but what what advice would you have to somebody if you talk to a you know a young twenty something right mm-hmm. now and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about building an airplane. Maybe they're doing something composite or something completely different." What I, I think the big thing is uh, don't go it alone. Um, I, even though I had all that background, I was discovering things I didn't know uh, all the way through. And uh, things that would puzzle me, and I have to—I would probably have not figured them out correctly on my own. So uh, that I think it's just true for all of us that these are learning experiences. That was why I dove into it. That's why I got so interested. I wanted to learn about composites. I wanted to know their strengths and weaknesses, literally in terms of characteristics. I want to know their best applications and where they weren't appropriate. I wanted to know more and more about this machine and how it could be applied later. And and there was so many things I just was not up to speed on when I got into it, unless I referred to other experts. And so just, just uh, you know, um, sometimes they, the project looks like just another project. You can dive in and just, you know, plow your way through it. But when it comes to an airplane, it's a serious thing that you're, you're gonna, you know, wanna make sure it's absolutely correct. And the best way to do that is to do it with a, 
a bunch of friends and other experts that can help you make some decisions. It is about risk management. Flying in general is all about risk management. And every single flight, it's looking at the risk versus reward of are the conditions worse today than they were were yesterday? Should I not fly because the winds are so gusty today? Those are all risk management decisions. And when it comes to flying your own home belt, there's nothing more dramatic than the risk assessment you have to go through for those, right? It's everything was on your shoulders when you're building it. You need some, some other sets of eyes to help you. So I think, Hal, the bottom line is just don't go it alone, you know, and get some, some teamwork going to help you make sure it's right. And then you'll enjoy it better, too. Sounds like a, a good recommendation to join EAA. Exactly right. Get connected with a local chapter and all absolutely. that Absolutely. Perfect. Flight test manual to help all these folks, right, Tom? That's absolutely right. I was going to give a couple quick plugs to some projects. And that, the uh, additional pilot program. And the additional pilot program. And um, and also just uh, brand new. It, in fact, so new that it uh, it hasn't hit quite hit the street yet, but it's just about to, is the non-builder owner guide. Right. So if you're, if you're um, looking to buy an already flying amateur-built aircraft, or other type of experimental aircraft, and maybe your experience is more in the in the type certificated world. Um, this is a guide that will basically help you get familiar with amateur built aircraft and the unique qualities of uh, of what they are. Some of the some of the 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 considerations you have to make and getting familiar with the aircraft, and uh, we'll hopefully kind of walk you through that process. It's about a twenty page guide um, that goes uh, goes through all that. Also developed by the uh, the EA Safety Committee and Home Build Council. Mm-hmm. So. And all those speak to kind of my thought here is don't don't go it alone, right? There's right. a lot of expertise out there to make your life easier and make the decisions more straightforward and logical. So, yep. and more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And also the additional pilot program is getting a couple of upgrades. Um, so, uh, if you ever build a very easy again, you might be able to use it this time. All so. right, that's cool. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, Charlie, we're right up uh, against the uh, the clock here, and I know you've got. Uh, busy several days ahead of you here for board meetings and all that but my gosh thank you so much uh, not only for coming in today for making the time but for making this your third visit it's always a pleasure to talk to you it's always great to see you and of course we appreciate everything you do for ea year round and the columns and your work on the board and the safety committee and all that my pleasure we're sure we're sure grateful for it thank you all right well speaking of grateful uh, we're also especially thankful to everybody out there listening uh, and for those of you that uh, take the time to uh, to send us some feedback uh, we really appreciate that we always love hearing from people you can send an email to sort of our general inbox at uh, feedback at eaa.org if you go to inspire.eaa.org which is our hangar flying blog uh, every episode there has a landing page and you can leave some comments and things there uh, also always uh, extremely glad to see uh, reviews on itunes or wherever you consume your podcast uh, we've got a great uh, great rating on itunes with tons of great comments uh, please keep those coming that's uh, the only reason and why we're able to continue doing this show. So with that, thanks again to everyone for listening. Keep the good feedback coming and the constructive feedback as well. And we'll look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. Green Dot.